This is Macro Horizons, episode 42, Fed Up, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of October 28th. With a nod to Twain's observation on the repetitive nature of history, we reminded that Tuesday marks the 90th anniversary of the great stock market crash of 1929, ominously also on a Tuesday. What could go wrong? The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, Ian, what'd you think of this week? It was one of those weeks that one might have come into anticipating something more than we got in terms of price action and come away from thinking it was largely a non-event. I'll make a slightly different argument. There was a reasonable amount of Brexit risk at the beginning of the week that quickly got priced out given the assumption now that there will be an extension presumably into the beginning of 2020, although that has yet to be finalized at this point. And the price action managed to trade in a remarkably narrow range. That in and of itself shouldn't be particularly informing for the next direction of treasury yields had it not occurred in an environment where the technicals were extremely oversold, suggesting that a correction back into the middle of the range was the path of least resistance. We also received three very well taken down treasury auctions in the form of twos, fives, and sevens, along with a particularly disappointing durable goods print. Within the details of durable goods, not only did the headline drop 1.1% month over month in September, but core shipments also fell, suggesting that if anything, since this was September data, there will be a downward bias to the upcoming GDP print on Wednesday, which at present has a consensus of roughly 1.6. All else being equal, I would have anticipated a drift lower in rates. In fact, what transpired was a couple attempts to push beyond 177 and retest 180. While that ultimately never came to fruition, it does set up next week to have the potential for a bearish breakout. As this applies to the shape of the yield curve, twos tens were within striking distance of 20 basis points. That's been a pivotal level on our radar as it could portend a more significant steepening. And with the Fed very close on the horizon, the notion that a policy-driven recast of the shape of the curve is in the offing certainly resonates with our take on the market as we transition from the final days of October into the last two months of 2019. 
This obviously brings up the corollaries with 2018, in which we saw a significant tightening in financial conditions, which was driven by a spike in equity vol, obviously owing to a correction in the major domestic indices. As we point out, it is the 90th anniversary of the great stock crash of 1929, and if anything, that's simply a reminder that we're at a historically precarious point for domestic risk assets when the Fed is presumably poised to transition from a quarter point cut per meeting to a period where the Fed is on hold to assess any positive impact on the real economy from their easing efforts thus far. We won't know if 75 basis points is ultimately going to be enough, but we will very soon have the Fed's opinion on that matter. So in a generally quiet week, at least on the data front in the treasury market, didn't exactly lead to a continuation of a, you know, bigger bearish breakout, but we did see sort of a yield move sideways near the top of this short-term range we've been trading in. Yeah, and I think that that is reasonably important in the context of the way that the market is trading. We have seen some developments that one might traditionally think of as more bond bullish than they actually played out in the treasury market. We had that very disappointing durable goods number, which also included a decline in the core shipments, i.e. durables, ex-defense, and ex-aircraft. Now, that's relevant because it most directly correlates with the business investment aspect of real GDP. Now, we did get a modest bid as a result. However, the market managed to stay well within a very narrowly defined range. And as you point out, Ben, that range is roughly, call it 170 to 180. And a continued consolidation in that zone actually bodes well for another attempt at higher yields. The biggest uncertainty, at this point at least, is what's going to be that trigger. Is it going to be the Fed? Well, if the Fed does manage to deliver another dovish cut, in that situation, the interim bearishness would be somewhat offset. In contemplating how the Fed might actually want to set up into the end of the year, i.e. the December meeting, it's important to bear in mind that if 75 basis points and done is going to be their narrative, comparable to what we had in the 90s, then they'll be tasked with trying to talk the market back from pricing in higher odds of a cut in December. If anything, it's safe to say that it is going to be a relatively exciting November. And yeah, the question is quickly going to become, what can we expect in December? We've highlighted the risk of a hawkish cut, and this week in particular, the two- and five-year auction results could have offered a good gauge in the primary market, at least, of how investors were thinking about the risk that Powell comes off as you know too hawkish, given that twos and fives are some of the most susceptible sectors to the direction of Fed policy. They were two really strong auctions, which to me at least suggests that even if Powell is going to go into Wednesday with the intention of reining in accommodative ambitions, it seems for the time being that's not sufficient to deter buying at these levels. And circling back to what we were discussing earlier, it is very interesting that disappointing PMIs out of Europe, particularly the contagion risk in the German services PMI, another Brexit delay, 
and earnings releases that continue to highlight the detrimental impact of the trade war have not triggered a bid. We're still right near 175, 180, even when the market is oversold. In an otherwise quiet week, we would think the technicals would have a slightly greater influence. So all else equal, you would think the market would be looking for an excuse to rally. The bullish implications were all but ignored, and that is a testament to a reluctance to fade this sell-off, at least for now. It is an important week coming up here from a fundamental perspective. Obviously, we have the Fed with no updated SEPs or projections and forecasts. However, we will obviously get the statement and a press conference as well. There will surely be questions centered around what's been going on in the repo market, the Fed's new process of expanding the balance sheet, as well as what the forward path of rates may be. Now, my biggest issue is we should intuitively be shifting to a point at which the Fed is more data dependent than they have been heretofore, if for no other reason than by definition being preemptive means that the Fed wasn't as concerned about the domestic data. An alternative but still useful way to consider this is that the Fed was concerned about the risk that financial conditions tightened. And some of the earnings reports that we have seen this season, just as a highlight, a few big industrials, some of the multinationals, have cited lower profit projections based in large part on the continuation of the trade war, China in particular being cited. Now, the parallels between the early rumblings of this and what we saw during in Q4 2018 certainly aren't wasted on me. But an important difference between now and then is I think I'm comfortable saying the Fed is not going to hike in December. <laughs> yeah, very fair point. The question then becomes, are they forced to ease? One of the aspects of risk asset performance over the course of the last year is that while equities have managed to retain a reasonable bid, it has come at an increasing cost in terms of monetary policy, as well as a much lower range for 10-year yields outright. So the Powell put is alive and well, just the difference this time around is will no cut be viewed as not accommodative enough? And that's a risk that Powell and the committee have to be worried about. Given how broader developments are playing out in the global sphere, first up is obviously Brexit being extended, a short-term positive, suggesting a longer drawn-out process. So for those hoping maybe 2020 would be the year that Brexit was behind us, not looking like that'll be the case. Moreover, for those of us a bit more cynical on the trade war front, anyone expecting near-term resolution between the White House and China will probably be disappointed as well. In fact, as we contemplate how long it will take the White House to come to a deal with China, it seems, at least this stage, that the timeline keeps getting pushed back further and further and further, which begs the question, is anything actually going to be done before the election? Our intuition, and I believe that the consensus in the market at this point, is that yes, there will be some type of resolution by the time voters go to the ballot box, if for no other reason than it is a reasonable way for Trump to add a incremental boost for the domestic equity market in the run-up to the polls. Whether it be phase one, two, three, four, or five, the idea that we will see some sort of quote-unquote breakthrough, no matter how small, 
should at least on the margin weigh on treasuries going into the end of the year or maybe even early next year. Fair to say? Yes, and it's also consistent with, as we've been on about, the notion that some of the relief in terms of a more dire outlook for the real economy globally should lead to upward pressure on rates. Not getting to 250, but anywhere between that 2 and 225 range in tins is certainly on the radar and is consistent with the seasonals, as we have noted on several occasions. And let us not forget that the spread between three-month bills and 10-year yields, it's back in positive territory. That is certainly a good sign, but it's still very flat. And as we've noted, the correlation between the shape of the three-month bill versus 10-year curve is reasonably strong. However, it occurs with a lag of about 18 months. So this implies, and is worth noting, that the flattening that we have seen since the middle of 2018 and well into 2019 has really yet to flow through to its full potential in terms of corporate profitability. Now, obviously, some of the earnings recession that has been talked about has failed to come to fruition, at least not in its entirety, which again speaks to the notion that it will be difficult to dislodge some of the positive momentum in the equity market. And in the vein of yield curves, twos tens is markedly steeper back in the neighborhood of 20 basis points. And this is a reflection of exactly what you say, the swing back of economic sentiment and the accompanying underperformance of the long end. Is this something that you expect to continue? Could we get back towards 30, 40 basis points over the near term? I think we could take a reasonable shot at 30, obviously that's predicated on a break of 25. However, it would require the combination of the Fed delivering on the rate cut in October and frankly, probably keeping the door open or not entirely shutting down the possibility of a December move while we continue to have some reasonable upward pressure in the real economic data, most notably on the inflation front. And another crucial variable in that equation is naturally the jobs picture. It is NFP week after all, and the negative consensus for manufacturing job growth does not exactly inspire confidence on the manufacturing sector. But as we've said several times, the U.S. economy is not all about manufacturing. In fact, it's much less about manufacturing than it has been historically. If we think about the proportion of the jobs market that was attributable to the manufacturing in the 70s and even 80s, we're talking 30 plus percent. That number has dwindled over time to the low to mid-teens. This is a function of two things. We have become far more efficient in our usage of labor power. The rise of automation has certainly contributed a great deal to that. And we have simply shifted more of our resources to the service sector, which has proven to be the engine growth in the U.S. over the course of the last several years. But even that being said, the consensus number for total jobs added is hardly awe-inspiring. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that job gains north of 200000 a month was the norm. And as uncertainties both domestically and abroad have flowed through to businesses, we've seen a tempering of those expectations, which is now reflected in the estimates for Friday's number. And let us not forget that we are in the point of the business cycle where we would expect employment as a lagging indicator to come under pressure We'll be watching for anecdotes of increased layoffs. There certainly have been several making the rounds in the news. And even though both of the ISM releases don't occur until after NFP, 
there are alternative measures, one of our favorite being the Challenger survey, to give us an early indication of how layoffs are stacking up now versus in recent months and a year ago. And outside of the economy, Wednesday also gives us the November refunding announcement, even if it is in October. And while coupon auction sizes are expected to remain unchanged, an interesting point that will be worth paying attention to is the discussion around the introduction of perhaps a 20-year security. The survey to primary dealers brought this issue up, and while it's a little bit too soon to expect anything formal in terms of a timeline, we would not be surprised to see the Treasury Department flag this as an area that they intend to keep studying, with eventually the prospect of a new Treasury coming down the road, even if it won't be a 50-year. So as we contemplate the trade for the next week or so, assuming we come in on Monday and we're at roughly 175, what's the risk for the next 15 basis points in 10-year yields? Our baseline scenario is that the Fed delivers on the rate cut, but it is interpreted as allowing for a bit more flexibility into December than the market would like to see. And Presumably, we get a reasonable print on NFP, even despite the relatively lackluster manufacturing expectations. So that points to higher yields in the 10-year sector and certainly does put 185, even the high 180s, on the radar if things play out according to plan. But when was the last time that that happened? Well, a recent example is Britain's orderly departure from the European Union on March 29, 2019. I wonder what Theresa May is doing these days. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will transition from trading the external factors of Brexit in particular, as well as the ongoing global uncertainties, back to trading the domestic fundamentals. A welcome reprieve, to be sure, but we have the FOMC decision combined with third quarter GDP as well as non-farm payrolls to round out the week. Generally speaking, there is an expectation for the Fed, obviously, to cut another 25 basis points, but in doing so, to lay the groundwork for a potential pause into the end of the year. The Fed's history of delivering a hawkish cut certainly suggests that it'll be a volatile takeaway in session, if nothing else. As we think about Growth in the third quarter, with a consensus of 1.6, it is easy to skew the odds lower, given what we have seen in terms of the trajectory for business spending via durable goods. Let us not forget the employment report. As it presently stands, the market is expecting manufacturing jobs to have declined 55,000 in the month of October. This is important because While employment has traditionally been viewed as a lagging indicator, the fact that we've finally seen some of the soft data, i.e. surveys and equity prices, translate through to a reduction in the upward momentum for the hard data, GDP and employment growth, the question will then become, how much further will it go or is this simply a one-off? When we're at inflection points such as this, the error band around the consensus tends to widen. Now, to some degree, that would imply a lessened response to a miss, rather than everyone being on the same page and an up or downside surprise triggering more significant follow-through. 
One might anticipate that a print significantly below the 90,000 consensus number for October would trigger a meaningful repricing. We're a bit less convinced of that going into the number at this point, especially given the backward-looking nature of manufacturing jobs growth. Also on the docket is the November refunding announcement. Auction sizes are less relevant in the current context than whether or not there's a more active discussion surrounding the potential for a 20-year bond. This would have clear steepening implications for the curve and certainly fit well with our expectations for a continuation of the cyclical re-steepening, which has brought us to the present point, not necessarily the upper end of the range, but with a fair amount of room to correct before there's any risk of a reinversion, as it were. As we look forward, we'll be interested to see how influential the seasonals are during the first two weeks of November as the Fed's decision is digested 10 and 30 year supply hits the street, and we get a clear picture of what growth and inflation will look like as the year enters its final few weeks. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. To bring it back to sage wisdom, whether it's Twain or Lincoln, we often lament not taking the advice. It is better to be silent and thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Ben, what do you think? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, 
products and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.